Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the TF Podcast, uh, where we talk about tech finance, what's going on in the world, and usually centers around uh, Bitcoin and other crypto. Uh, I am here with Alex Gladstein, and uh, he's with the Human Rights uh, Foundation. Uh, I'm really excited to have him on the show and, and talk about a lot of the things that he does with his organization, as well as uh, his opinions on some things. I've actually myself have started following uh, people on Twitter um, that I enjoy really following as a result of Alex's retweets. So I appreciate that. Thanks for that, Alex. And uh, with that, why don't you welcome yourself to everybody, please? Yeah, there's some good people out there. Hi, everybody. My name's Alex. Uh, I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation, and I also talk uh, and present and discuss and debate about Bitcoin around the world as it relates to freedom and human rights. Nice. Awesome. One, one, a great tenant for Bitcoin uh, with that, definitely. So real quick, can you give us a, just a quick overview of what the Human Rights uh, Foundation is? Sure. It's a charity organization based in New York that has a global operations, and we support people who live under authoritarian societies, people who don't have uh, access to an independent uh, judiciary or uh, free press where their government is usually you know, dictatorial or tyrannical in some way, and there's not really a balance of power or you know, free and fair elections. These people typically can't uh, legally create a human rights organization, for example, or an environmental group, or even like a you know, a group to protest for better wages or whatever. There's yeah. just very little room for civil society to operate uh, in any meaningful way in authoritarian countries. We're talking 4.3 billion people in 95 different countries, everywhere from China to Saudi Arabia to Turkey to Russia to Venezuela to Cuba to Zimbabwe. I mean, unfortunately, it's uh, the majority of the world's people live under a regime that doesn't permit any sort of uh, reasonable organized opposition. So yeah. HRF specializes in helping them. And a uh, big part of repression is financial repression. So a big part of the way that governments um, who are arbitrary in nature, a big part of the, how they're able to keep, keep going is, is by sort of exploiting and taking advantage of, uh, let's say, that, that the economy um, by, you know, seizing the means of production of the money, um, uh, you know, printing more of it when they need to, uh, preventing certain people from getting it. Uh, employing favoritism to distribute it, um, <clears throat> devaluing the savings of people, you know, when you need to pay for stuff like wars or um, repression campaigns or propaganda or, you know, yeah. paying people to come vote when they're trying to rig an election, who knows what. So at the end of the day, money and finance is actually a big part of, of the struggle for human rights. Yeah. Yeah. So much to unpack there. And, uh, uh, you know, definitely, I love, like I said, I love what you're doing and, um, it's it's something that I is is important to me. So my family is from Venezuela. I have family that live in Venezuela. Um, I was born here, but all, my parents were born in Venezuela, and so I, I definitely pay attention a lot to to what happens there. I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit in this conversation. Uh, one thing that just really stuck out with me is you you know you said 4.3 billion people are in these circumstances, and you know. I'm a big believer that when you put numbers or, you know, percentages out there, like it makes it more, re I didn't realize it was that much. You know, I, I assume that it was probably close to half, but not, I guess, technically over, over half of the population uh, is under that. that. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, look, it doesn't mean that the, the, the rest, the other 48% are, are perfect. Um, yeah. Democracies, all of them are flawed. It's just a matter of how flawed are they? The, the, the difference is that people in democracies have a means by which they can change their government. And right. people in democracies have a means by which they can speak their voice and change policy at a national level or at a regional level without necessarily worrying about getting kidnapped or killed. Um, right. <clears throat> that's the difference. So they can start nonprofits like here in the United States. Uh, look, I'm sure a lot of Bitcoiners and you know your fans are not fans of the US government, which is fair and fine. Um, but the thing is, like, you can start an organization like the ACLU or the, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and you can literally yeah. sue the U.S. government, and you can, like, force it to change, right? You can whistleblow, leak, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, and people have, and that's how we've seen our nation change. Um, and this is the same in any sort of democratic nation to an extent. Where you kind of draw the line is when you start getting into these authoritarian societies where 
you know, you can't really do a political protest. You can't do a gay rights protest. You can't, um, you know, openly mock the government. I mean, a lot of people right. are like, well, it's the same, you know, China, Russia, United States. And, 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 you know, one, there's just one angle helps you understand how different they are in Russia or in China. Um, if you are going to criticize the government, you first of all are deathly afraid to do so. Right. And if you try to do it, you need to be very careful and you will probably get, a reaction ranging from being like war like sort of warned in a way where you get fired from your job or something like that and if you do something mm -hmm. again something worse is going to happen to getting imprisoned and arrested to getting killed so journalists in these countries have faced uh, these challenges um meanwhile here in the united states you can make millions of dollars criticizing the president on television so mm -hmm. so the the difference is really really vast and a lot of people just don't see it or they get lost uh, in a lot of the bad things that democracies can do. Mm -hmm. And they, they kind of conflate like good and evil with democracy and authoritarianism. It's not as straightforward. It's yeah. what we're merely getting at here is the structure within the country. It doesn't mean that like the majority of the people could vote for somebody who's going to do something bad. That could totally happen. Yeah. The whole point of democracy is just making sure there's structures in place, checks and balances in place so that that can't get out of hand. Right. Um, and indeed, we've seen horrible excesses of democracies ranging from wars to surveillance states. Um, but at the end of the day, the people inside the democracies are, are, are largely aware of these things and, um, mm -hmm. you know, did protest by the millions or, you know, have done things to push back on these policies. And people have been elected, uh, you know, different kinds of people have been elected in our institutions as a result. And I, when I say our, I mean, everywhere from Japan to Costa Rica to, um, you know, uh, the United Kingdom to Australia to Chile to Ghana. I mean, there's just lots of democracies in the world. So yeah, um, there's, there's, you know, a similar amount as there are dictatorships, right? Right, right. Uh, you know, that, that makes me think about uh, how you're saying like the compare and contrast and how people in the US might have a certain opinion or those that may not be aware of how uh, authoritative government kind of operates. And often you'll hear people say things like, well, they voted that president in, right? Like that happens in, in certain countries where um, like, you know, just Venezuela again is the, the Chavez now Maduro um, regime has been voted into power you know, every single time, you know, we both know that they're more than likely has well, been they, serious. Well, but they've, they've lost regional, um, regional, yes. local elections. Yeah. And I think the key thing is that, um, look, a lot of these dictators start out as Democrats. I mean, you could look at Putin or Erdogan in Turkey or Chavez. Yeah. And at the beginning, all around the year 1999, all three of them were kind of very sort of popularly elected. Uh, I'm not going to say it was 100% free and fair, but let's just say that you know, by any sort of reasonable muster, uh, an election observer would probably say, hey, yeah, like they held elections in Venezuela, Turkey and Russia, and the people's will was reflected. in Right. And that, and that first go around, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. And then what happens is some of these um, populist kind of leaders, once they're elected, they start dismantling the infrastructure of democracy. So in the case of Chavez, Erdogan and Putin, they started going after the media, they started going after the other, the wealthy, the, the rich, the oligarchs, the business leaders, they started going after um, politicians, even in their own parties who disagreed with them. They started creating scapegoats. Uh, so in the case of Erdogan, it was like um, basically a, a particular religious sect, the Gulenists, mm -hmm. who he kind of painted as like the, the coup plotters and the scapegoaters, and he scapegoated them, etc. Um, you know, and in Russia and in Venezuela, it was more like the pro-American capitalist, whatever, right? So yeah. there's they all they all follow a similar playbook. But at the end of the day, by 2000 and certainly by by 2006 or seven, all three of these countries were were getting close to becoming stone cold authoritarian states. And then by 2010, their fate was sealed. Yeah. And it's sad because those leaders could have brought their country into an era of prosperous democracy, and they chose to try and rule forever. You know, right. it's just sad. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't planning on going here, but I think there's some of the things that you said that kind of target this question for me is, do you think that a, the United States presidents 
takes some of these um, tactics to hand because when you're saying things about like you know like discrediting the media or blaming an organization or those sort of things that, that's actually you know without getting into like obviously we're getting into our own politics on here do you see similarities with that is that yeah I mean to me I think for example I think Trump has an authoritarian personality yeah yeah uh, he personally is authoritarian um, but he lives in a, he's in an office and lives in a country where he can't do whatever he wants. Right. Like when he gets to the office in the morning, there's like 700 requests. Uh, sir, the media, uh, the, the Congress needs this and that and the other thing. And he's, he, it, you can see how frustrated he gets that he lives in a world that he doesn't control. It, right. it really makes him boil over. He hates doing the media conference, press conferences. He hates getting embarrassed. He hates getting called out. And it's just, you can see it. He's upset by it. So if you swapped him with Sisi in Egypt, for example, He'd love it. He wouldn't have to deal with the press. He wouldn't mm -hmm. have to do press conferences. He wouldn't have to deal with an opposition, you know, Senate uh, or, or, or senators or, or congressmen. He could just do whatever he wants. Wanted to kill a bunch of people, he could. No big deal. You know, there's no press to report on it. So you can have these authoritarian personalities that get way out of whack in dictatorships. Yeah. Um, in America, we have just a much stronger set of... Um, uh, constitutional guarantees like free speech and things like yeah. that. So um, yeah. certainly not great to see him uh, attacking the media, but like his effects are limited when compared to like sure. what Putin does. Like we don't have journalists in, in prison in America. It's not like right. he's uh, ordering hits on journalists. It's not like he's even trying to sue and shut down the media. Like he can't, you know, we have protections here. Yeah. So it's important to distinguish authoritarian personality from authoritarian power structure. No, I'm so, glad. Yeah, I'm glad you did because you, you know, we were talking about that at, at the beginning of this conversation, right? In in terms of you know, kind of the difference of dictatorship versus democracy, and and where that's. So I felt like that was a good way to kind of draw that conclusion or that 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 analogy there or uh, comparison. I mean, I ultimately, say. it's just it's about multi-party politics, sort of at the end of the day. Yeah. Like, like, is it reasonable that Trump could lose? the next election, um, you know, and, and that everything would go nonviolently, like very, very likely, you know, I would say 50-50, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, is it likely that Maduro will lose, you know, without putting up a fight? Like, no, not yeah. obviously not. So, you know, and the, another example I like to give is uh, when you talk about open and closed societies, um, during the Occupy, protests in New York City and other major urban areas in the United States, there were a lot of arrests, right? But something like 99% of people arrested at these Occupy protests were, were released within the day, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, a couple of years later, there were massive protests in Venezuela. Uh, 2014, there were like lots of student-led protests against the government. And a lot of people were arrested. And you know what? Yeah. It's like 99% of the people arrested, we don't know where they are. They were disappeared or murdered. So yeah. that's the difference between an open society and a closed one. It yeah. doesn't mean there aren't protests or bad leaders. There are protests and bad leaders in both kinds of countries, but there's a mechanism by which we can actually like speak out and change things um, to, to an extent uh, in democracies where like you just don't have that in dictatorships or, or those who do figure out how to do that in dictatorships are historic, you know, whereas we take it for granted, right? Totally, totally. And so moving on to like the financial um, degradation of the of the country and so forth. Um, it, it's interesting, because like you're saying, in in 99, for example, with Venezuela, um, the believer I want to say was, it was like something like 500 believers to the dollar. It, it was some, something around that. And now we're in like trillions of believers to the dollar. And mm -hmm. as you were mentioning, uh, there's, there's benefit in basically creating this inflation um, against essentially keeping your own country poor, right? Um, when you Especially are, if you don't have to worry about elections. Right, right. I'd love if you could kind of just like dig into that a little bit because um, it, it's, it's pretty... It's pretty um, ramp it across those type of right. countries where that just is part of the playbook well you know in the history of fiat money um basically in the last 120 years or so right um at first the gold standard still existed so you know pre pre-1971 um government still more or less you know 
their their spending and their economies were tied to the amount of gold they had and this was sort of a elegant balance that that existed whereby um sort of irregularities and issues in certain economies would get fixed and sort of balanced um by the strength of their currency you know if if your currency was you know started to get weak you'd be able to export more and then you do more business in that way and then that would lead to gold flowing a certain way and then all of a sudden your currency would strengthen right so this kind of existed for a long time and then after 71 when nixon closed the gold window uh, you know it just allowed um i think even in advanced democracies a lot more obviously leeway and spending and deficit spending to happen um all over the world whereas before it didn't mean that you couldn't do bad stuff but like <laughs> The government had to actually go, generally speaking, had to go get more of that underlying asset. You know what I mean? I mean, you look mm -hmm. at World War I, um, you know, and if they didn't, bad things happened. Like in World War I, the Russians and Germans went off the gold standard to print more money to pay for soldiers and weapons and things like that. And it got so bad that the uh, Deutschmark was worth one trillionth of what it was, you know, pre-war as, as with regard to after war, right? Wow. So, uh, uh Rather, it was worth one trillionth after the war when compared to what it was worth before oh, the war. It, yeah. um, and that obviously devastated the economy and set the stage for the rise of Hitler, right? So that was really bad. Um, and you had a horrible series of hyperinflationary episodes all across Eastern Europe. I think Hungary is like the record holder during the Cold War. So a lot of these like planned statist economies, uh, literally, you know, what, what, what planned statist economies are is basically social engineering. So they were trying to like socially engineer the economy. In reality, they all had to basically copying the Soviet Union, lie about their economic performance, try to paper it over, and you know do their best. And it resulted in a lot of tragic comedy and and brutality, uh, you know, all across the Soviet bloc and and sort of in that in that sphere of, of kinds of governments. But um, generally speaking, it got it got very bad in a lot of places. Um, but I will say you know, this ability of governments to socially engineer the economy, some have been better than others, right? So um, today, hyperinflation is really rare, right? So it's, you have it in Venezuela, um, uh, you have it in arguably Iran, you, you had it in Zimbabwe, you have it in Eritrea, there, there was uh, an episode in Somaliland, which is like part of Somalia. There's high inflation in a lot of countries around the world. Um, but like that actual breakdown into hyperinflation where the money's disappearing in front of you it's pretty rare um, I, I think it'll get worse in the future um, but currently a lot of at least Western democracies and Europe European governments even Asian governments have been able to um, control the supply of money in a way where they haven't keeled over like it's it's worked pretty well for them like look at Japan I mean it, it's pretty amazing how much money they've printed in their con they're still a the, you know, a top performing economy, generally speaking, around the world. So, so we're kind of living in this age where governments ha have figured out that they can socially engineer kind of a, an economy, even if it's sort of a zombie one, they can keep it alive for, for a while. I don't think they'll be able to keep them alive forever. Um, I think that would be kind of folly to believe that. Um, yeah. But I think especially the stronger economies can, can kind of mortgage their they can kind of, I don't know, they can obviously take out loans and they can, they can like leverage those loans and they can, they can spend today at the expense of tomorrow, right? So they can um, take a loan out on their future, you know, at the expense of people in the future. And that, that we're in a very now demand world economy where that's sort of being done. Like people are spending in a way and fixing crises in a way and paying for stuff in a way where they're not necessarily thinking about how they're going to pay for it in 20 years. Like that's not, right. and, and that's especially on display in dictatorships because dictators don't care about in 10 years. They're just like trying to survive. Yeah. Okay. So their strategies are much more temporal, which is why you see a lot of ec more economic mismanagement in dictatorships. Like, like actually, if you just look at dictatorships, generally speaking, um, aside from a couple exceptions, their economies tend to be fairly disastrous over yeah. time. They tend to have total collapses. A lot of them have to just scrap, like the worst ones have to just scrap the currency and start over again. 
ruining the savings of all of their citizens. This happened in North Korea and in Eritrea, at, at, both at around 2009-10. I learned this from talking to defectors of both countries, but basically around 2009 in both countries, the government just announced one day that all that money that you've saved, it's all worth nothing and we're introducing a new currency. There'll be a window of time where you can come, redeem some of it for the new kind, but after that, it's worthless. So hmm. it's sort of like what India did with like a very high, uh, high value note, but they did it for all the currency. Wow. So, and they had to because they had just ruined, they just, they just basically like, they just, it's like when you're wringing a wet rag, they had wrung every drop of moisture out of that currency and it was done and desiccated and dry. And then they need to make a new one. Same thing happened in Zimbabwe. So this is like the worst dictators often fall into this trap. Um, because they literally don't care about the people. Um, but generally speaking, if you just go blow by blow and you look at Lib Libya, Syria, uh, Iraq, Iran, um, Cuba, I mean, all these countries I just mentioned either had like insane inflation, um, massive debt crises uh, leading to war, conflict, or in the sense of, in the case of Cuba, there's like economic apartheid where like, the Cuban people have to use a different currency than the tourists and the government, right? right? Right. So there's, I mean, when you actually talk to people who are dissidents from authoritarian regimes, money, money is like a big, big deal. And it's a way that the government controls people. And it is something where people often face economic ruin. In free countries and democracies, we still have issues with devaluation and with inflation and with, um, economic recessions and also deflationary effects because of what governments do um, in many ways. And of course, because of what private sector does too, but like it's more fixable because there's just, it's more, the, the economy is more open when you can have, it's sort of like with coronavirus, like, like there can be incompetence, but if you have an open environment where there's journalists and press and we can criticize the government and like we can push it in a particular direction, we're going to be better off than a country that, that decides to cover up and kill uh, or, or disappear people who want to, to challenge what the government's doing, right? Totally. So that's the same with the economy. Like if you live in a country where like you can protest against what's happening, um, where you can get elected and change the policy or direction or course of what's happening, you can force the country to go in a particular direction and it can be more open and you can have more control over it. I would say a little less so over the economy than with political power, but still this holds. In dictatorships, there's not, you don't, again, you don't have that mechanism. You can't be like, oh, I think, uh, sir, I think, uh, you know, our currency is, uh, is getting too strong in turn, you know, domestically, and we can't buy yeah. anything. Stop, you know, stop it with the, uh, you know, you know, stop it with this or, you know, uh, you know, stop it with the inflation prices are rising. You're not rising, you know, you're not increasing my wage. Like, Stop it. Like, they, there's no back and forth for that. There, there's yeah. a, good, a good example of this is in Nigeria in the in 90s. There's this dictator, uh, Sani Abacha. And I think in 92, he pegged the, um, they love to do pegs, all these dictators. So they pegged the uh, Naira to the dollar, 22 Naira per dollar. And he's like, this is what's going to happen. Obviously, the peg can't hold. You know, they don't have the economic growth to be able to do that. Yeah. So they held the peg. And people get paid at that rate, you know, and they have a massive public sector. So all these people are getting paid and their wages are like stagnant and prices in the black markets where people have to go buy stuff basically uh, are, are like skyrocketing. So mm -hmm. um, in reality, the rate by, by the late nineties was like 90 to a dollar, but people were still getting paid oh, in the good, public yeah. sector under the assumption that it was 22 to a dollar. And these are, these are some of the reasons why these regimes fall, um, because these schemes don't work in the end, right? And that's a big country. That's like the most populous country in Africa, right? So these aren't just like isolated ex examples. There are, there's a lot of stories about monetary collapse around the world. Um, you know, you do have to tip your hat to say, hey, um, the Bretton Woods experiment and, and the sort of American petrodollar experiment has arguably brought a mat the crazy prosperity of the world, but but it kind of comes at a cost. Like some of the more advanced economies have been able to export a lot of their problems to other countries where things have been really rough. Mm -hmm. um, and then even in those countries, 
you know, we're kind of kicking the can down the road and, and our future populations, it's like unclear what's going what's gonna to happen for them. So, so given this backdrop, um, this idea that Bitcoin is like globally, universally known with regard to its issuance supply and its, its schedule of um, minting, uh, that we all know what's going to happen, I think is really just fair. I mean, I think it's just, it's just a very radically different approach than the current one where the people who run the central bank and the politicians get together and they decide what's best for the country. And, you know, again, maybe that works fine ish in democracies for a while because they do serve as servants of the public. Right. But for the 52% of people who live in dictatorships, it don't work so fine because those people don't care about the population. They only care about themselves and they're going to exploit and manipulate that economy to no end. I mean, as they do here in the United States. I mean, look, who, look, who do you think is getting bailed out first, the companies or the, or the people, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of, it's like on full display. But like, so Bitcoin provides a different model whereby like in its financial system, there is, it's not possible to have favoritism with regard to where the money goes. Um, it is an, an open competition that is, uh, provides equality of opportunity. There's no discrimination. Um, and that's just a really different system than the one we have now. And I think it'll be, really helpful in leveling the playing field in the future because yes, like if you have more wealth pre Bitcoin, you can buy more Bitcoin. You can stack sats just like everybody else, but that's it. You yeah. can't change the rules. You can't print more. You can't decide, no, he can't have any, but we're, we're going to shut these people out. Um, we're going to like have a different, we're going to censor their transactions. You can't do any of this. It's, it's not possible. We're going to take over the network and change the rules to benefit. Nope. Can't do that either. So, you know, there is this equality of opportunity idea and the system is architected and built to, in a way that's literally the opposite of where we are today in the legacy system, yeah. which is under stress, which, you know, again, for like the rich countries, we've kind of figured out a way to, to like keep our economies on life support in a weird way where it looks like we're doing really well, but underneath it's like super messy and you're going to see this increase because people are, it's you know, these ideas that like, you know what, we shouldn't even need underlying assets to print money are getting more popular. We have this like MMT thing here in the United States. And of course in Europe, similar ideas abound where basically the government should just be able to like make the currency when it needs some. And then like, it'll stop when there's inflation or shortages. This is kind of the idea. And um, I, I just think that we, you know, We've seen that be abused. And maybe one of the reasons it hasn't really been abused so badly so far is that like, you know, the ECB and the Fed kind of have independence-ish and they're kind of more monetarist, right? Yeah. In, their, in their actions and thinking. And that's changing, man. Like the, those people are being forced to think about UBI and, and, you know, just bailing out every possible segment of the economy and, I think it's going to start developing into like a trend and not just a one-time thing. Um, and look, maybe that's better for the fiat system. Who knows? Maybe it's better for the fiat system that people get bailed out first and that you have a direct account with the Fed as your savings account. And when the Fed decides to do, you know, the Fed slash treasury decides to do stimulus, goes right into your account as opposed to having to go to Blackstone and then to Bank of America and then right. you know, trickle down to you. Um, maybe that's more fair. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that all, I think we should discuss these ideas and um, well, maybe so inside the fiat system, the MMT will actually benefit some people. Who knows? All I know is that like, it's a wild experiment and I'm really grateful that we have Bitcoin because like we can opt out of that into something where everything is known and, sure. and excited that people in advanced economies like Japan, United States and Germany can do it, even though our economies are stronger, but really excited for all the people who live under dictatorships and authoritarian regimes where the economy is usually disastrous. Like it yeah. really gives them an opportunity to like permissionlessly, no one can stop them. They don't have to ask for permission or give ID. They can like access an asset that can be like a meaningful place to put their time and energy into savings that they can actually control in a sovereign way for them and their family and their future. That has been lacking. We have not had that. People in the developing world have used sheet metal or cows to store their value in these things aren't very liquid there's obvious problems with them they don't really increase in value over time 
et cetera, et cetera. Gold has become way too expensive for the average person to accumulate in a meaningful way. Um, governments have hoarded gold. Gold has become a lot of restrictions on gold, obviously in 33 in the United right. States. Uh, couldn't and there's even, a- couldn't even exchange your dollars for gold anymore, right? And and yeah. 71, governments couldn't exchange their dollar, dollars for gold anymore. So it's like, you know, there's been an attack on all these other assets and, you know, people aren't left with much. But what's so really kind of crazy and promising is that now anyone with access to the internet can convert their time and energy into an asset that is that that you know has this like sort of is digitally decentralized scarce is is the only asset in history that's digitally is is digital decentralized and scarce and they can like place their trust in that um it will be volatile for sure for a long time but no no authority will be able to like arbitrarily devalue it yeah yeah i i I, I love all the points you make. I, I, I agree with that. I think it's interesting when you start seeing uh, these other countries or so uh, it was either last week or this week. I can't remember. No, it was last week that um, China basically made more announcements on their digital currency. Right. And that they're going to do some runs with uh, Starbucks and McDonald's. And uh, it's interesting because I can totally understand why the government of China would want to have a digital currency um that is used within a network that they can have more access to and control of it totally makes sense now if that's good for humans if that's good for the people of china probably not you know when when you're thinking about it from how uh, monitored they are as a society uh and to me like that's ultimately what makes bitcoin more one one of the many reasons that makes bitcoin really interesting to me curious what your thoughts are on that particular scenario or just the kind of that in general yeah, so we're watching kind of like a very compressed part of human history where like fiat money is relatively relatively a new concept. Um, money whose value is issued by decree as opposed to attached to some sort of precious metal or good or commodity, et cetera, et cetera. So that, the, if you look at like the whole history of humanity, this is like a new new era, right? It's, it's, a, it's a brief era. And what governments are realizing with advanced technology, you know, which of course didn't exist really until this decade is that they can use like big data analysis and, and quote unquote AI and stuff like that to like have a more granular real time understanding of what's happening in the economy. We've had credit cards for a long time, you know, digital money for a long time, but you know, we didn't have the big data analysis pop that necessary to, to allow governments and corporations to do sort of like real time surveillance, behavior mapping, et cetera. Um, only in the last, arguably, you know, less than a decade, uh, last five years, really, yeah. has this really come to the fore. And governments are really excited about this because both for good reasons and for bad reasons. So if you are to take the angle that you believe the only way economies can work is with through central banking and that um, they need to act as a lender of last resort and that's just the way it's got to be. Okay, so if we take that perspective then endowing these central banks and monetary officials basically with the power to do things at the press of a button um, is really good for them. So for example, if like you're in China and there's a downturn in the auto industry, you could just like press a button and credit everybody in the audio industry, auto industry with a particular amount of money to their digital account. Mm-hmm. You can't do that now because China doesn't have a digital currency built in that way. And everybody's got their own bank and, even in China, the whole system is like disconnected and, and disparate across the nation. Sure. But they're working towards an ability through this uh, um, uh, DCEP currency, the, the CBDC of China, the DCEP, um, DCEP. They are working towards an ability where like the, the, CC, the Communist Party of China can basically just say, hey, we're like worried about this area. Let's like throw some cash at them and then hopefully they'll, they'll chill out. They'll stop protesting. Um, so that gives them like really big powers and that's going to be really exciting for them. And all these monetary officials, even in democracies and and really in every country, I think are, their mouth is watering over this ability to potentially do that, to to have this micro grain, micro control over the economy. Yeah. And argue, you could, you could, you could say that maybe that's good. I mean, I I don't necessarily think so, but like, that's, that's not the worst argument for it. That's like a benefit that people are going to pitch. However, 
At the same time, it gives them micro understanding and surveillance and control over everybody's money. Right. So as whereas before in the cash age or the paper money age or the metal money age, like when you did a transaction, like the person you paid didn't know anything about you. I mean, you, you know, literally nothing, you know, your email, phone number, address, nothing. Um, now when you like do a swipe or whatever, you're revealing all this stuff about yourself. And, you know, that hasn't been hugely terminal yet because again, governments haven't had this ability to like track everybody at once. But now we're entering this age where not only do we have, we have all this digital, every, all the money's going to be digital. Okay. Cash disappearing. Um, probably will be gone pretty much entirely in 20 years. Mm-hmm. I think people being born today won't really use cash. I mean, especially in urban areas, but, but really, I think arguably everywhere. Yeah. Um, and then they're going to get this additional ability to control and surveil. And it's going to come in combination with all kinds of other personal data so that they're going to have total awareness and understanding of what's happening. So that's really, really scary because, you know, we know where that ends, that that ends in a slippery slope of what's happening in Western China, Northwestern China, Xinjiang, and uh, basically like high tech prison camps. So I think it's really important that we promote Bitcoin and learn about it and understand it and debate it and discuss it because it does provide this fundamental, fundamentally different way of doing things where we can transact without third parties where we don't have to pour our identity stack into the system to use it. It can be pseudonymous. We can protect ourselves with cool tricks and tools. Um, we can make it really difficult for people to find out what, what Bitcoin is, is whose. Um, we can be assured that, again, like this idea that the government will just be able to like manipulate the money supply to keep itself alive, keep, it, keep itself going, or keep the private sector going, which is what's happening right now in the United States, um, can't happen. You know, so look, I don't think we'll ever live in a world without like government debt and, and the, the idea of government, you know, loans, essentially, uh, treasuries, yeah. whatever. Like they'll, they, as long as we live in societies with governments, they're always going to issue debt. And like there will be a marketplace and humans will figure out, well, how much is that worth? OK, well, this government's doing really well right now. Great. Maybe I will want to like buy some of their debt. Right. OK, fine. Um, but generally, you know, so I think a, a lot of the current architecture will be still there in the future but it removes like it just changes some of the base basic ways that 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 things work like it if we did move to an economy in the far future that was that was sort of based on bitcoin like yeah you 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 couldn't just make more money when you needed it you'd have to literally borrow it uh you know put up collateral like you know produce more value i mean you know, this would not necessarily be bad, you know, like I think currently, obviously there's like a orthodoxy among economists that deflation is like way worse than inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But like, first of all, Bitcoin's not deflationary. Like it's actually inflationary until 2140. So that's a long time, man. That's like a lot more, uh, you know, future looking than I think everybody else is looking. So at least for like, for 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 anyone on this planet, their entire lifetime, Bitcoin will be inflationary. So we don't really have to even get into this argument about what's going to happen with you know a deflationary asset. And um, uh, you know may, maybe because of loss of coin and things like that, like it'll become deflationary sooner. But like the point is, the new production of money schedule is known to all, and. Um, it's just kind of a refreshing, exciting idea that we're going to get to watch play out alongside the sort of MMT-led um, uh, dollar, RMB, euro, uh, yeah. yen uh, evolution. I right. mean, those four currencies are going to go in a way where the people who make those currencies, literally the people who make them, who mint them, are going to make a lot more of them. Um, I was listening to this really great interview earlier with um, – the guy's name is Jeff Booth, and he's got a book out about about the virtues of um, deflation when, with regard to technology, okay. and just kind of explaining that. It's kind of kind of interesting. It's called "The Price of Tomorrow." Is is his? Um, yeah, check it out. Book, but he kind of gets he gets into this a little bit, and um, there, you know, he he basically says this: um, in order to finance. He says something like this globally, and I think it's over the last 15, 20 years, whatever. In order to finance $40 trillion of growth, we've had to print $130 trillion or something like that, or you know, create it in different ways. Yeah. Um, 
and that's not like a very good value. Like, like it's, it's already stagnant um, in a huge way. Um, it, the, it's exponential though. So like the next four years to get what we need, we may have to print 130 trillion. And you're already seeing, I mean, what he's literally saying, this is an interview probably taped a month ago or something. I mean, you're already seeing the world has printed more than 10 trillion, I believe by this point, or has said they're going to print more than 10 trillion just uh -huh. in a month. So his prediction could, could easily come true. Like governments could probably print more than 10 trillion in dollar denominated assets um, uh, over the next four years. So this debt-based society that we live on that's over leveraged, um, it could get a lot worse is what, is what he was saying. Um, and, you know, he believes that a, a different model would be helpful. So he even talks about Bitcoin as being potentially something that in the future could be, could be the groundwork or foundation. And again, like most people who debate these topics live in Milan or London or Paris or New York or Tokyo and their productivity and having dictatorships. Okay. So we have two radically different worlds. We have like the world of Bloomberg and the financial times. And, you know, they're like worried that our productivity and economic growth trajectory won't continue. That's like their worry is yeah. like, Oh, times won't be as good. Or, um, you know, they're worried about a recession. Like that's like what they're worried about. Meanwhile, most of the world is worried about dying civil war, um, massive inflation, starvation, uh, you know, getting hauled off in a black bag, having to escape their country, yeah. uh, under, you know, having to somehow make truth out of propaganda and lies and censorship. That's like the story for everybody else, right? So we're living in a dichotomy. And I think that the Bloomberg Financial Times crowd, um, you know, ha has it better than they think they do. Um, and, and they've really been able to live off in many ways, this, this whole dollar, the euro dollar system, the, 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 the way that the U.S. government acts is like the lender of last resort for everybody right now. And even people using, to an extent, yen and euros and RMB, like these folks are living in a particular sphere that is very different than everybody else. Um, and everybody else is living in a world where like they can't even get dollars, like dollars. Oh, my God. Like I was talking to a guy the other day. He's a teacher in Russia. I mean teachers in Russia still save in dollars. Like, like they're just trying to get dollars, you know, yeah. it's a very different world than the world where people like just swim through dollars. That's the way we live, you know, or euros or, or any sort of stable currency. So again, you have this dichotomy where you've got, you got a lot of people living in a kind of a dream world where their concerns are very, these first world problems. Um, and yet everybody else is watching from the outside looking in being like, wow, I wish I could have 1% of your problems, you know, right. like got 8% of your inflation, sign me up tomorrow. Like, <laughs> you know, like uh, a recession every 10 years, sign me up tomorrow. Yeah. Um, uh, unpopular, you know, uh, stimulus effort went, went awry or, you know, we don't like the guy in, who's in charge of the central bank. Like I'll take that problem any day. So like, again, the problems of the first world economy are, are very different than the problems that, that people face inside closed yeah. authoritarian societies. Definitely puts things into perspective, especially when you put it like that. Uh, you know, it's great at what I'm really enjoying and loving about this conversation is that um, you're, you're basically, yes, you touched on Bitcoin, of course, but you're basically making the case for Bitcoin without even like promoting Bitcoin, right? So like, hey, because of all these reasons. Well, what else do we have? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I we have it. a digital, decentralized, scarce, universally accessible, permissionless, censorship resistant, confiscation resistant asset that runs on a network that doesn't have a single point of failure and doesn't require any particular ID to access or use. Yeah. Like, wow. Like, <laughs> where did that come from? Damn. Yeah. Like, so that thing, whatever it is, um, it's growing. And it's not, you can't stop it. And in the end, it's not even really a technology. It's an idea. It's a social construct. It's a, it's a figment of our imagination almost. Like, that's why you can't kill Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the separation of money and state. You can't kill it. It's an idea that humans have figured out how to do. And they're not going to let go of it. Once, they, once you realize what Bitcoin is, like you're not, you're not going to go, you're not going to go, you're not going to turn back. Like once yeah. you've had the penny really drop, 
like a lot of people who attack Bitcoin or hate it. I mean, I think they are, um, you know, pre-coiners. They don't, they haven't really grasped how important this is and why it's just an incredible thing that's been literally dropped on our lap um, and then developed very, very carefully through a lot of hard work with an amazing community of people over the last decade plus who fought their own battles. I mean, Bitcoin may be small globally, meaning less than 1% of the of humans own it. And it's what, only $120 billion compared to 8 trillion for gold or whatever. But um, it's had some fierce battles, man. Like people have tried to hijack it, take it over, mm-hmm. copy it, tons of social attacks, blockchain, not Bitcoin, all these other altcoins. Like people have tried to come in and change the rules with all their money and all their influence. And they've all failed. Because yeah. like the people who run and operate and 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 produce Bitcoin are are us. It's of the people. Like we don't know that, that nobody is in control, you know. And that's such yeah. a different paradigm that people can't understand it. Totally, it's very difficult to understand. It takes a long time. It takes months, years to understand that. Once you understand it, it's frankly very exciting. I mean, like we don't we I need totally it. Agree. Like what else? What are we gonna go back to the gold standard? I don't think so. Like sorry. Yeah. Um, what 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 else how else can we think of a different mon- money system that that is not that does not just allow people who are close to whether it's by nepotism or friendship or by just deal making close to the folks who are making the money literally yeah. printing the money um they get to benefit first and that's how we found ourselves in this crazy situation and there's that great website what the fuck happened in 1971.com um, and it has these amazing charts of all these weird social things that have happened since 1971 when the gold window was closed, just in terms of um, productivity, which used to track wages, you know, productivity keeps going up, wages have gone flat, real estate's exploded, um, the, the prison, people in prisons have, the number of people the American government have, can imprison for ridiculous stuff like having marijuana has exploded because it's gotten cheaper for them to build those prison sectors you know prisons because they can borrow the money at a cheap low rate to do it and they can get money to do it easily like it's it's really crazy to look at that look what cheap easy money has done to to the world and it's dangerous because on the one hand it's like created so much growth and like um you know modernity you know but there's a really dark underbelly to it and i don't think i don't think they're in conflict i think you can have incredible growth and productivity and modernity with a different kind of economic model that doesn't privilege the few. I I just think it's possible. And that's why Bitcoin is so exciting. But, you know, we are a ways away from that maybe even happening. Like it's just too immature of an asset right now, but it is really cool that it exists. Like it's really, really neat. I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. I think you're bringing some really great points. I, I think about, you know, what you're saying with the social construct and it's like, you know, sometimes people say like, Oh, the tech's stronger or, the case is stronger, but I think kind of to go along with what you're saying, it's the text there, like it's, it's solid. Like, you know, you can't modify it. Like you said, it's the social construct gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Right. And like how we, or I should say how we think of the social construct, I feel it gets uh, more solid. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. It's super interesting. To well, me. And it's given, there's one chart on that website that shows a relation between, um, you know, easily easy money and um and populism so it's like pre uh pre bretton woods and and post 71 uh there were you had this um basically it was more equal the bottom 90 percent and the top one percent um you know the 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 bottom 90 percent and the top one percent were unfortunately very close, like in the 1910s and 20s, in terms of how much wealth they held, right? It was mm-hmm. very similar. And then like over time, um, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, the, the folks who are in the bottom 90%, the, their, their share of the wealth goes way up. And it's like way, way higher than the folks who own the, the, the top one, you know, the one, what the 1% owns, okay? So it's like this. And then after the 71 window closes, it starts to go in the other direction. And by the 80s, 90s, and now we're, we're actually, they're crossing. 
So it's nuts, but like now we're crossing again, and now the 1% own more than the bottom 90%. And that's how it was before World War I. So it's like this giant oval, basically, that you're looking at um, with like little sharp ends, like almost like a lemon. And World War I and today, uh, we're, we're kind of in the upside down world where the 1% own more than the bottom 90%. Um, and it's just kind of crazy to think about because those are the conditions that create populist leaders. Yeah. People get really pissed when the, 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 when there's not, not, not when there's people doing smart, brilliant things and creating great companies. That's very different. Like pure capitalism or free trade is very different from what we're dealing with here, which is like total kleptocracy and corruption. Um, so people get pissed when there are different rules, basically, when there's no equality of opportunity, where there's like different rules for the elite than for the masses. People yeah. get angry, they become populist, they decide to start, in many countries, revolutions, like not so good. So what we are presented with now is a monetary technology that doesn't have different rules for the elite and the masses. That's the key. Like it's, it's not that there won't be inequality in a Bitcoin world. It's not that there won't be corruption. It's not that there won't be, you know, that, the, that there won't be a 1%. There will be all these things, sure. but they won't have different rules than everybody else. Right. And that is just so incredible. I'm not someone who believes you can have a quality of outcome, but I do believe in a quality of opportunity. And I, I believe that Bitcoin um, may bring that to us in the financial system, which is the global financial system, which is pretty amazing. Also, it, it just, it allows countries, countries are equal. Like it means that the United States, which has been dominating all these other countries, um, great for me, really bad for them, for a long time, they can't do that anymore. Like they can't, you can't just print more, you know, they wouldn't be able to just print more of the global reserve currency. They'd have to be, again, bound by the rules of everybody else. So it's this incredible thing, if you think about it, where it really like encourages, forces collaboration and cooperation and problem solving, both at the community, local, federal, national, global level that we've never had before, because before every, and today everybody can cheat. It's yeah. like what was happening after 33, but before 71, um, or after rather the Bretton Woods system, between when Bret, you know, between World War II, when the Bretton Woods system was launched and, and, and 71, you know, governments would cheat. They would like print more money and then go to the United States and try to give the, you know, the dollars that they earned and exchange it for gold. And this is one of the reasons the United States went off, uh, you know, closed the gold window in 71. They were worried that they wouldn't be able to meet all the demands from all these people around the world who had dollars who were coming to bring the dollars to the United States to withdraw gold. One of the reasons that Nixon decided and his people decided to go off the gold standard in that way. Um, but uh, it's, um, it's, it's crazy because if we lived in a more of, a, you know, let's say a future, future Bitcoin world, they wouldn't, you know, you can't do the cheating thing. Like um, you'll get caught, right? It's like, it's, it's kind of an, an incredible idea. Yeah. Um, you, you, um, yeah, you, you, you'll be just, it'll be more difficult. Now I'm not saying that like, you won't be, look again, almost every industry will still exist. Then you'll still be able to take out loans and have all kinds of different schemes and there'll be insurance and, um, there'll be mortgages and all kinds of stuff with, with Bitcoin as an underlying asset. But, but because the underlying asset would be, um, scarce and valuable i think it'll just change human behavior in a huge way and i'm just not sold that it'll cause death and destruction you know that that is essentially what a lot of people will say but you have to ask you know qui bono you know who benefits so they're claiming now that oh my god if we went to like a bitcoin type standard instead of central banking for example that we would enter in these horrible deflationary recessions where like, you know, the, there'd be no more ability for a, a Fed or a central bank to like help the people, right? Well, it's like, if you didn't have easy money, like maybe there'd be less like loans available for people to take out, like maybe it'd be harder to get a mortgage and okay, maybe growth would track more closely productivity as opposed to bubbles. Like we don't know, nobody knows this. So people can have their theories, but, um, the fact is nobody really knows, right? Right, right. So I, I love the, the thought of a Bitcoin um, back reserve currency. Um, I think it would make sense. But do you think it'll actually, it could actually happen? Meaning like the only yes. reason I think it wouldn't happen is more because of the government oversight to not no, I mean, want look, that to happen. You have to understand. You know what I'm saying? 
Governments yeah. are rivalrous. They are in a competition to defeat each other, okay? So today it's still too early. Like most people don't understand Bitcoin. Like sure. certainly not all the government officials in all these countries. But like once they realize that this thing is this like decentralized, digitally scarce asset that they that can't be, you know, you can't arbitrarily make more of it. Um, I have a feeling that some of them will start accumulating it, maybe quietly. Already we know some are doing this already. Yeah. Um, yeah, like North Korea has a significant yeah, amount. Yeah, like right? again, the ones who are left out of the financial system. And yeah. I... I I think that's going to end as a human rights advocate. I actually think it's going to end really poorly for North Korea and Venezuela and these countries that may be stacking Bitcoin. Um, first of all, they're not stacking it. They're, they're, they're using it to get around sanctions and they're spending. They, yeah. they don't have saving. They don't, they're not like saving it. They're not, they're not hodling. Let's put it that way. Um, so you don't have to worry about that. But uh, I think they're like introducing Bitcoin into their, into their government and, and into their like, like let's say the top officials of the regime, that's going to end really poorly for them because yeah. like as more of the population realizes there's like this other money that the government doesn't control, like that's going to be bad for those dictatorships. So I think short term, it could be good for them, but long term, it's going to be horrible for them. It's going to destroy their ability to fund their malice basically. Um, but look, we're talking decades from now. Sure. But you know, it's going to take. It's going to be very gradual. This is a super, super gradual, slow-moving transition that that may happen. Um, but I just feel like it's almost inevitable. Like, I mean, this asset is so unique and so scarce and so valuable, and it does so many incredible things that eventually governments are going to want to accumulate it. And sure. um, I, I do think it's possible. I mean, who knows? I'm not saying yeah. it's probable, but like. Right, right. I think it's possible that we could live in a world where there is like kind of a, a Bitcoin standard as like a, as like kind of a reserve currency. Yeah. Um, and it would be a very different world. I think, again, there would still be um, banking and mortgages and commercial mortgages and investment. And, you know, yeah. you'd still be doing VC and all these things, but there'd be like less of an opportunity for some of these assets and things to get inflated. There'd be less of an opportunity for bad decisions to get rewarded. There'd be less opportunities for bailouts. There'd be less opportunities for governments to bankrupt future generations. Um, I just think it would be more tempered. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I think it makes sense and it should, and I hope it happens. I guess it's more of like the, when I, when you think about the, the only reason I, um, pucker a little bit about that is because the human element of the government, right? And so like from a human element of a government uh, being weary of, of essentially allowing a more democratic um, uh, ability on the finance, right? Even though, so because it's decentralized, it's slightly more, de it's going to be more democratic, right? Well, here's the right? thing, like that's all. with the gold standard, governments could cheat and lie, but with Bitcoin, you can have proof of reserve. Totally. Like Nick Carter's pointed out. So uh, and I'm sure others, but, you know, governments can know how much Bitcoin other governments have. Right, right, right. So if government A is printing more money than it should, uh, printing more, you know, Bitcoin-based fiat, you know, than it should, there, there, there will probably exist a way for, like, other governments to realize yeah. that a lot, a lot easier and sooner than, like, governments that were on the gold standard printing. Sorry. Or governments that don't have a standard at all and, and are trying to cheat or manipulate their currency. like. It's so ridiculous to the point today where like people argue about whether or not China is manipulating its currency. Like, this right. is a point that economists literally cannot agree on. Obviously they're manipulating their currency. Yeah. Like they, they won't, like even when Obama's treasury secretary Geithner tried to like accuse the Chinese of doing it, he had to walk it back. Right. He'd yeah. be like, Oh, well there's no evidence of this. Right. And it's like, it's just, you know, it's, it's easy to hide this stuff now, but totally. if you had proof of reserve, well, it'd be a little easier. Yeah. Know? Yeah. No, I, I, like I said, I, I hope you're right. That's, that's definitely what I want to happen. Um, real quick. So, but it, we, but it won't happen overnight and it's certainly, it could not happen at all. It might happen. It won't happen overnight. If anything, sure. it's going to be the super gradual frog boiling and water thing over the coming decades. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but, uh, I, yeah, I we got to probably, we got to wrap, but yeah. there's just one question I want to ask you before, um, just really real quick about North Korea. Um, Kim, you know, there's this rumor that he kind of slightly off topic, but I saw you tweeting about it. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious for your take on it. So yeah, there's this rumor that he, um, uh, he had passed, uh, supposedly he is okay. Just wondering if you want to just kind of just touch a little bit on that situation and then just North Korea, because sure. I know you've talked to, to a lot of defectors and things like that. Yeah, well, 
people need to understand that he's a god. So North Korea is a theocracy. So all these North Koreans, 25 million North Koreans, they worship him. And the state has, over the decades, cut all horizontal ties between families, communities, um, you know, and established a ver vertical ties only between the individual and the dear leader. So in North Korea, you know, especially pre-2010, it's like husband and wife didn't even really love each other. They only loved the the dear leader. It's a very weird concept. But if you talk to North Koreans, they'll, they'll tell you about this, um, whereby... Um, his just whatever he was doing was so paramount to everybody else. Um, one of the reasons why, even though he's very unhealthy, that he's probably going to survive this thing, etc., is that he has a ministry of health for just him, and then everybody else has the rest of the ministry. There's another ministry, but like he's got the like premium version of the ministry of health just for him. Uh, there's wow. a good book called Dear Leader by uh, Kim Jong Il's poet laureate escaped and wrote this book about his life which is fascinating you should read it. it's called wow. dear leader and he talks about this how like the kid the, the, the dear leader has his own ministry of health so there's like hundreds of people just working on his own private health so maybe kim jong-un should have died years ago and somehow has been you know propped up but it looks like he's just riding out the storm he might be sick from what i understand but he's he's not dead right now and and um, we'll see. I mean, it, it is possible that in the next couple months, there's some sort of transition uh, of power away from him or something as they try to groom somebody else. But, uh, you know, again, he's the god. It's a religious dictatorship. Um, yeah. If the Kim family falters, that opens the door for secular reform, uh, like, a, like a military dictatorship could, like, just kind of step in, which would be my hope. So, um and which is that is a, big, which is which is weird for me to say, but like, um, this is what you want because like a military dictatorship that's not religiously fundamentalist, the, in theory, would be able to negotiate with the South and with America and China and like open the prison camps and get rid of the nukes and start opening up economically, and they wouldn't be like banging the table threatening to nuke everybody. Like this yeah. is that the, they're doing that because they are born and bred by Kim Il Sung, the founding founder. Uh, the founding god of the nation to believe that there's always this war around them and that everybody's about to attack and that's why they have to all be on like war footing like basically every day in every north korean house there's a radio that has to be installed and you get into huge trouble if it's not installed correctly and it just blasts all this stuff in your face every day and in the offices of everybody about what the hell the the, the dear leader's doing and the threats from south korea and japan and america and all this stuff. So crazy. They're all on war footing and um, they're all in this crazy propaganda bubble where, uh, you know, they're not allowed to see any information from the outside world. My organization has done a large amount of work smuggling outside information in by flash drives and DVDs and things like that. So flash drives for freedom is actually up for a webby right now. So you can go to the webbies and vote for it if you want, but we've been, we've been sending, uh, you know, movies and books and information in, and that's like a you do that like with with a balloon, right? Like you put it on a balloon, or we used to you... experiment with that. That's not as effective. We've realized as uh, just like these like uh, human um, like basically black market routes on the Chinese border where people like buy and sell things, and and they can like get bags in and and got flash it, drives it. and hard drives and cell phones are really really valuable inside North Korea, so they can like spread very easily in a viral way. Um, but this is really important because it creates little like revolutions in people's minds. Like if you talk to North Korean defectors, they'll tell you that like seeing some sort of foreign media, I mean, it's like, it's like a Truman show kind of like moment type thing where you realize you've been living a lie, right? It's like a it's literally like the matrix. It's like yeah, taking uh, the say. red pill, man. So they yeah. take the red pill, they watch and for different people have different stories. This one guy I work with, who's just he became elected in South Korea as a Congressman. It's amazing. But he saw the Avengers and that really like blew him away. Like, this other woman saw the Titanic, like the Titanic that blew her away that you could love another person. Like that was so alien to her mind. God, so, that's so crazy. So all this like, uh, and, and a lot of the, look, this isn't some Western imperialist plot. Like, sure. like virtually all the content that gets sent into North Korea is Korean. It's from South Koreans. I mean, they're the ones who have the family on the other side of the border and care about the people who were left behind. So um, this isn't some like British American plot or whatever. This is like, the Brits and Americans, to be honest, our intelligence agencies probably don't want to see it change, to be brutally honest with you. They probably want to just like keep that stuff, you know, static, um, which is sad because it means 
that all these hundreds of thousands of people in gulags will just remain. But um, at the end of the day, we can do something. We can send information in. We've been doing it via flash drives for freedom. Check it out. Um, and yeah, I mean, when, you know, we're translating. I wrote this book with seven other co-authors called The Little Bitcoin Book yeah. last year. And Jimmy Song and I are very passionate about getting it into Korean and sending copies into, into Korea to help explain. Um, and I think the book's very balanced. It doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't like attack. It's very critical no, of America. It, it's very critical of the U.S. government as well. So like, I think it'll be a, a nice balanced thing. And I think they'll read it and, hey man, like Bitcoin will come to North Korea. I mean, it's already there in many ways, but I think people will start to understand it. And once, once they can get a little more internet access, man, it's on. It's totally, totally on. So thanks for having me on, man. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. Yeah, the Little Bitcoin book is a great book. I read it. Um, I had Jimmy on on here uh, a while ago, and we actually gave a few of those out at one of our conferences. So that's great. Well, I'd love to leave you with the last word. Uh, is there is there like a question or something you want to leave our listeners with while they go about their day, something they should be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, just know it's early. You're at the beginning. Um, we're at the very bottom of the S-curve of this thing. And that's something to be excited about. Yeah. Uh, people in the future will say you're lucky. And hey, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe you're right place, right time. But uh, to have an understanding of Bitcoin, even today, it seems like it's been, there's been many eras that have passed and like there's been so much history. But like still, we're still so freaking early is the crazy yeah. part, right? Um, and the people who will make the biggest difference in Bitcoin's first hundred years haven't even been born yet, probably, you know? So we have to understand that there's going to be new people coming in and learning how to do stuff with Bitcoin and promoting Bitcoin in different ways. And they haven't even learned about Bitcoin yet. And they're yeah. just going to like blow this thing to a whole new level. So it's, it's very early and we should be grateful for that, but also excited uh, for the future. Totally. I love that perspective. Well, Alex, what's the best way that people can uh, follow you or get in touch with you or contact you? Yeah, on Twitter, uh, my last name, Gladstein, is my handle, G-L-A-D-S-T-E-I-N. Um, give me a shout out. Check out the Human Rights Foundation at hrf.org um, and our series of events, which are on sort of hold right now, but we're doing some virtual ones. We just did COVIDCon, covidcon.org, which explored the authoritarian response around the world of governments to the pandemic. And um, we've got an Oslo Freedom Forum event coming up in the fall, whether that be in person or virtual, I'm not sure yet, but um, we'll have to see. And uh, I guess I'll be on like a, I don't know when you're publishing this, but I guess I'll be on a, a couple Bitcoin VR meetups soon, uh, doing one with uh, Udi, oh, as nice. well as one with, uh, I guess, um, some other folks in, in, in mid-May. So there'll cool. be some VR too. Awesome, awesome. Alex, thanks so much. I uh, really appreciate you uh, being on here and I've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, everybody, yeah, looking forward, man. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Uh, thank you everyone for listening uh, to the TF Podcast. Again, please make sure that you're following us uh, on uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, just at TF Podcast, uh, as well as on YouTube. And I'm at JG Product on Twitter. Uh, thanks again, and we'll, we'll see you soon. Thanks.